Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are entering a brave new world, ladies and gentlemen, where politicians will only tell the truth, where voters will only vote for people they believe in and where journalists will ask all the right questions regardless of who is sitting before them. If you believe that, I've got some swampland in Florida to sell you. The campaign proper gets underway this week as the big questions begin to emerge and the big differences between the parties are revealed. Number one, has Nigel Farage cost the Brexit party a chance to power share in Parliament? We'll be finding out what on earth it is Uh, that is stopping him from running as an MP. Number two, will Boris Johnson survive if Brexit Party candidates split the Leave vote? Number three, is the Lib Dem vote collapsing because of clever campaigning by Labour on Remain? And four, can Jeremy Corbyn be benefiting from second referendum voters in the polls? It's still the most difficult election to predict ever, so we'll be getting a host of experts and politicians on to test the waters. Alexandra Phillips joins us from the Brexit Party over in Brussels. Pollster Joe Twyman is here to tell us what the latest voter intentions look like and Dr. Rakib Hassan uh, from the Henry Jackson Society will be on later to describe why the older vote will be key in December. Meanwhile, of course, we want to hear from you, 0344 499 1000, although we are having a few problems with the phones, uh, so do bear with us if you can't get through. Tweet us as well at talkradio at IROMG. We may not have left the European Union yet, but are we getting any closer or are we getting a little bit further away? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here. On Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Well, there were plenty of politicians being interviewed over the course of the weekend, plenty of people putting out their stalls. Another couple of them resigned, as far as I can see. Uh, Another couple of them maintained that they were not going to be coming back. Uh, We have, of course, today in Parliament the opportunity to see who's going to become the new Speaker of the House after the retirement of John Burko. Kate Clark gets to choose how uh, that one particularly works out, and we'll be following that throughout the course of the day here. We'll be talking uh, to the resolution 
Foundation. Charlotte Ivers will be rounding up all sorts of things for us. Ben Clatworthy here is going to be here from The Times. Alex Phillips as well, uh, Brexit Party MEP for the South East of England. I'll be asking her, what exactly does Nigel Farage think he is playing at? First of all, though, let's say hello to Joe Twyman, founder of Delta Pole. Joe, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. So, um, I saw over the course of the last few days, you've put a couple of tweets out regarding the actual Boris Johnson deal and how people feel about that and which particular parties are willing to vote for it. Tell us a bit about that first. That's right. Uh, we ran a poll at Delta Pole over the weekend and found that Boris Johnson's deal, uh, well, when you ask the general public whether they support or oppose Boris Johnson's deal, you find 33% support. 33% opposed right. and 34% don't know. Excellent. So, so it is mathematically impossible to divide a country more evenly yes. than that. But of course, it's not about the national picture as much as it is about the individual parties. Now, overwhelmingly, the Conservative voters favour uh, Boris Johnson's deal. Perhaps no surprise there. But of course, they didn't overwhelmingly favour Theresa May's deal, even though there are arguments about the precise degree of difference between the two. And then most of interest to me is the fact that among Brexit party voters, mm. we see that more of those support the deal than oppose it. And this, of course, is in opposition to Nigel Farage's consistent line that this is not a real Brexit and it's not the right, uh, not the right deal. And that suggests to me the difficulty that the Brexit party might have in gaining the kind of foothold that they need if they're going to have anything other than a, a, a cursory uh, well, this activity is, this in is, this election. Well, this is the kind of one of the main planks, if you like, of the, of the whole election, isn't it? Because Nigel Farage on Friday coming out saying basically uh, get rid of the deal and we can do a deal with the Tory party. Um, Donald Trump sort of more or less peddling that line as well, saying that it's almost impossible to do any trade deals with Britain. That's been defunct over the weekend by Boris Johnson saying that Donald Trump is wrong about that. What I'm seeing over the weekend is an awful lot of action between Brexit party voters and Tory party voters and somewhere in between about whether or not Nigel Farage is doing the right thing here. Yeah, and that's uh, that's not good news for the Brexit party. No. I mean, I guess it gets them a bit of publicity, but ultimately they want to campaign on this uh, on this idea which doesn't seem to really be uh, really be resonating. But ultimately this doesn't come down in public opinion terms. This doesn't come down to the people who have sat and read both deals right. in detail and then made copious notes and come to a reasonable logical conclusion. Right. Instead, it's about the feelings that they have around this and Theresa May was not trusted by Leave supporters in large numbers. Uh, she didn't have the kind of support that uh, that Boris Johnson now has, mm. and so as a result of that, people take people taking cues from the leaders are thinking, okay, well, I didn't trust Theresa May, so I didn't like her deal. I do trust Boris Johnson, so I'm more likely to trust his deal, mm. and that's why I think it's uh, it's going well. It will be interesting to see whether over the course of the campaign, whether that situation remains the same or whether this sort of cumulative effect of, uh, of stories will have, uh, will have an impact. Well, certainly Nigel Farage's assertion at the weekend that he would not stand as an MP um, has upset quite a few Brexit party members because their view is, if you're the leader of the party, you should be in Westminster because one of the things I was going to say, as I said to Julie Hartley-Brewer on, on, on uh, the handover before, is that if there is to be a parliamentary Brexit party because they win some seats, and I've said... I think they'll win maybe as many as five or six, but no more than that, really. 
they need a leader in Westminster, don't they? I mean, it's sort of Ian Blackford figure. Now, you might say uh, that it shouldn't be Nigel Farage, he's going to be too busy. But according to my um, understanding of the uh, withdrawal deal, basically the MEPs will cease to be MEPs as soon as the withdrawal deal is, is passed in Parliament. So yeah, there's no need for him to be in Europe. The thing is, uh, the Brexit Party's level of support has been gradually falling since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister. And I think that uh, Nigel Farage has made has come to the conclusion that he can't win a seat. Mm. And if he can't win a seat, then campaigning for a seat means that he effectively speaks to the same group of people ten times rather than speaking to ten groups of people. Yeah. And he clearly believes that from a sort of politically pragmatic point of view, he can have more impact speaking to those ten different groups of people mm. than he can speak to... But are you same- seriously telling me that the Brexit Party cannot find themselves in a particular seat that they wish to fight? Say, for example, in the northeast of England, which has got a 70% leave uh, constituency, or say, for example, Wigan going up against Lisa and Nandy from the Labour Party, can they not find a seat that's safe enough for Nigel Farage to win? Because if they no, can't, no. it says very little about the power of the Brexit Party. I, I think it's very unlikely. I think five would be an, five seats would be an amazing result for uh-huh. the Brexit Party. I think winning one would be a, certainly an achievement, and I think it's highly likely, Surely not guaranteed, that they, that, they could win, uh, that they couldn't win any. Because in those leave-leaning, uh, leave-leaning seats you're talking about, the, work, the vote for Labour is enormous. And among those Labour voters, it's highly likely that a majority of those Labour voters, even in leave-leaning seats, will have voted Remain. And so, yes, a Brexit Party candidate may take off some of those, uh, some of those votes. Mm. And they may even substantially reduce the majority that Labour has. But the size of those majorities in those areas and the kind of swing that you would need to get away from Labour is enormous. And so I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying it represents an enormous risk mm. and it, because it's not very likely. And if you were Nigel Farage, you would probably look at these risks in front of you and think, OK... Uh, I could go for this particular seat and work very hard to stand a, let's say, a 50-50 chance. Just, mm. And that's, that's not based on data, I'm thinking, yeah. simply as an example. Or I could travel around the entire country supporting 20, 30, 40, 50 yes. different but candidates. But he should surely learn from his previous experience, which is with UKIP, when UKIP managed to get about 4 million votes in one particular election, but no seats, because in a two-party, first-past-the-post sort of dominated system, it's very, very difficult to gain that sort of traction. Just ask the Lib Dems. Yeah, and there's, not, and there's nothing he can do about that. For nearly 4 million votes in, 20, uh, in 2015... Uh, 12% of the vote, one seat. And mm. that was Douglas Carswell, which was obviously a, an unusual situation right. in itself. Yeah. Nigel Farage has repeatedly tried to win. And he's tried Seven to win. Times. And he's tried to win when, in, on occasion, much better political circumstances mm. than he's in at the moment. Yeah. And he's failed to do so. I mean, it's interesting what uh, the reaction, as I say, has been. Many Brexit Party voters who voted for the Brexit Party in the European elections have gone to the other side and said, you know, Nigel's wrong on this, we need to back the deal. Uh, even Aaron Banks, right, one of the fam- one of the famously bad boys of Brexit, you know, head of the vote, uh, the Leave.EU campaign, basically says um, that Richard Tyson and Nigel Farage are engaged in some kind of vanity project and that they need 
need to get on board. Otherwise, Brexit won't happen. They're now effectively being accused of stopping Brexit. But this is exactly what we talked about at the time of mm. the European elections. Yeah. We talked about the fact that this was the closest we had ever come in this country to a consequence-free election. And so people were able to vote knowing that there would be no consequences yeah. to their vote, practically speaking, other than the opportunity to send a message. Mm. This is completely different. This is a first-order election rather than a second-order election, as geeks like I call, uh, geeks like me call it. And so, therefore, the implications and the um, uh, the whole situation is different. And mm. there are real, real implications, both domestically and with regards to Brexit, on this case. And the Conservatives' approach has always been to unite that Leave vote as much as they can by making it clear that a vote for anyone else prevents Brexit and lets in a Jeremy Corbyn government. Barry says exactly that. He's tweeted, it's very clear that Farage would much rather stay in the EU and heckle from the sidelines. He knows full well he'll end up splitting the Leave vote, stopping Brexit and piggybacking Corbyn into number 10. Realistic Brexit voters can see this, surely. Well, let's talk about Jeremy Corbyn because he's had a bit of a, uh, a boost in the polls over the weekend, it would seem, although it may not be due to anything other than um, just that it's his weekend, you know what I mean? Sometimes it just goes that way. Um, but already people are drawing sort of um, comparisons and parallels to the start of the last uh, uh, general election in 2017. Yeah, what I would say to everyone listening, uh, to all the listeners at home, is when it comes to a general election campaign, as at all other times, look at the long-term trends in the, uh, in the polls. Look at the turning points rather than the talking points, because you will have fluctuations along the way. The overall story is that, yes, Labour um, may pick up on individual days and the Conservatives may drop back, but the Conservatives are still doing very well in terms of their share of the vote, which is considerably higher than Labour's share of the vote. Now, it was a very similar situation last time around, and we don't know what will happen in the campaign, just as we didn't know what would happen in the previous campaign. But 2017 shows the potential that campaigns have to change that polling picture. We saw how the uh, Conservatives really didn't do very well in the campaign, and Labour surged in, uh, in their polling rating, thanks to events such as their manifesto launch, which went down very well, mm. which was in contrast to the Conservatives. And, of course, in individual constituencies, they were able to say, OK, well, uh, a vote for Labour keeps uh, keeps the Tories out. Uh, it's not a vote for Jeremy Corbyn in some areas. In other areas, they're saying, no, it definitely is a vote for, for Jeremy Corbyn. But the situation at the moment is that the Conservatives are still, uh, still have a much better share of the vote than Labour. And also, crucially when it comes to support for Boris Johnson versus support for Jeremy Corbyn. Boris Johnson is well ahead on leadership. He's well ahead on who's best able to handle the economy. He's well ahead on who's best able to handle Brexit. And it's neck and neck, perhaps the Conservatives even slightly ahead, on who's best to handle health, which traditionally has been Labour's territory. And so the underlying data at a national level favours the Conservatives, but it could all change, and ultimately it doesn't come down to share of the vote, it comes down to how many seats you Number can of seats, win. precisely that. Joe, stay with us, we've got lots more to talk about, including Joe Swinson, uh, including what is going on within the Labour Party as well, and which particular seats are going to be, uh, in fact, targeted by both the Tories and Labour uh, to try and get themselves the highest majority uh, in Parliament that they can get. Uh, and of course, as I said, we've got some problems with the phones. Uh, if you do want to try and get in touch with us via Skype, by all means, send us a 
text message to 87222. Uh, that will cost you 25p plus your standard network rate. Or uh, tweet us at Talk Radio uh, with a Skype name. Uh, we can call you back and get you on the show because we want to hear your views. Uh, but at the moment, technologically, uh, we are slightly uh, in a bad place. But don't worry because uh, we will still bring you all the news as it happens. We've heard uh, for the moment that uh, Nigel Farage is about to unveil 600 candidates for the Brexit party, uh, which is going to take some time, I would have thought. That'll take most of the day, I should imagine. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there's a lot of shifting sands going on and swirling waters around this election, and nobody really feels confident enough to dictate precisely what they think will happen. There is no such thing, really, as a safe seat. Almost anyone uh, is up for grabs. Even Tom Watson's seat, apparently, in West Bromwich East, uh, is very possibly uh, a target for the Tories. And any number of other things could happen. You know, Hillary Benn could lose his seat. Ken Clark's standing down. We're going to elect a new speaker uh, over the next sort of 24 hours or so. Let's talk now, though, to Dr. Rakib Hassan, Research Fellow from the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism at the Henry Jackson Society. Rakib, welcome back to the Independent Always Republic. Always a pleasure to join you, Mike. You've been studying uh, some of the sort of trends over the last few days in sure. terms of the way people are voting, the way sort of groups of people are moving around. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? I think we've got some very interesting shifts going on. Um, Onward, uh, think tank based in London, they yeah. come up with this concept, Workington Man. Workington Man, And yes. I've written a fair bit about this, the idea that Labour may be vulnerable in its traditional heartlands, in the provincial Midlands, Northern England, and also those deindustrialised part of Wales. Now... When they came up with the concept, you had Lisa Nandy MP saying that, oh, London think tanks, they don't understand northern rugby towns. I'd actually offer the view that some of those Labour MPs representing some of those constituencies, they don't understand their constituents very much either, particularly when it comes to Brexit. Well, Lisa Nandy's always an interesting case in point for me. She sat in my tent, if you remember, sure, down yeah, in I Westminster do. and, and said that there was no such thing as a deal and that the thing that she had voted down three times wasn't a deal and we had a ridiculous conversation. But she's also a Remainer representing a 70% leave seat. Well, this is the thing. If you take Workington, for example, we voted 61% leave. Since its creation in 1918, the Tories have only won there once in a by-election in 1976. But a recent poll showed that they've now got an 11, um, 11 percentage point lead over Labour. And that's precisely because pro-Brexit voters there, they know where Boris stands when it comes to Brexit, while they're frustrated with the fact that Labour, their position on Brexit is anything but clear. And on top of that, I think they feel that there's a fu- they feel fundamentally disconnected yeah. with the general social attitudes of the North London metropolitan elite, which very much uh, dominates proceedings within the Labour Party now. They can't relate to no, it, of course. especially I mean, when it comes to issues such as immigration, Brexit, issues such as multiculturalism as well. They just feel they don't they're not represented by the Labour le- Labour Party leadership no, anymore. Because one of the things I remember reading about that uh, um, that onward uh, sort of description of Workington Man was that they tend to be more uh, traditional. Labour Labour voters, more working class. And be more socially conservative in a sense. Socially conservative, very uh, concerned about the immigration levels coming into the country, very concerned about law and order. Mm. um, And and perfectly legitimate concerns as well, Yes, of course. And very concerned about what the traditional sort of working class representatives of the Labour Party were in favour of. But now they find themselves kind of slightly lost in the whole you know, LGBT campaigning that goes on. The regressive the whole, identity the, the, politics. Yeah, the regressive identity politics, the kind of, you know, do as I uh, say, not as I do. You know, all this nonsense about please be careful with your language, don't say words. Pronouns. Which, you know, yeah, I mean, these guys are going down the pub after a rugby league game uh, up in Wigan or St Helens or somewhere like that, and they're not talking to each other like that, I'm afraid. They don't. They can't relate to it. Or to, With the Labour leadership, they're more interested in championing diversity, talking about inclusion. But the... 
the reality is there are patriotic humanitarian voters in their heartlands. Mm. They're, they're not interested in hearing about some of those things. That's the truth. And they feel fun. They feel completely disconnected yeah. from the Labour Party leadership. There's this ultra-woke leftist force, force within the Labour Party now, which very much dominates proceedings. And that has led to a fundamental disconnect between their traditional voters, who may hold more socially conservative views on yeah. issues such as immigration. Right. They're generally pro-Brexit. Quite frankly, they have reservations. In my view, they have legitimate concerns over cultural diversity and parallel communities where essentially they're living side by side, but there's very limited contact or Mm. interaction. These are perfectly legitimate concerns, but unfortunately, they don't... uh, The Labour leadership, they're not really interested in hearing about those concerns. Well, they're not. And, I mean, interestingly enough, one of the accusations that's made against the Labour Party um, and and about their kind of policy towards um, their Jewish members and the fact that they've got a problem with anti-Semitism is that there are those who say that Labour are always trying to target uh, other ethnic groups who might not be actually that upset if they're targeting uh, or being, shall we say, less than friendly uh, to Israeli communities or to Jewish communities or to pro-Zionist groups, you know what I mean? How does that play? Well, I've got to say, with the, it's important that it's important to recognise that the ethnic minority population in the UK it's richly diverse yeah. in terms of ethnicity and in terms of religion. Another group of voters within the British electorate that Labour aren't doing particularly well among are British Indian Hindus. Yeah, traditionally they tend to vote Labour, but. They feel that with Labour, they're almost unapologetically pro-Pakistan, for mm. example. Uh, Labour, um, at their party conference, they passed a motion which was deeply critical of the Indian government over the issue of Kashmir, where they called for international intervention and they criticised the India, Indian government's decision to revoke Article 370, so which granted a special status to Jammu and Kashmir. But there's this idea now amongst a growing number of British Indian Hindus who have shown in recent elections that they're increasingly moving away from Labour and towards the Conservatives, that when it comes to issues such as economics, as you know, that it's a very economically self-sufficient mm. community, very entrepreneurial and business-minded, but also, when, you, when you're looking at foreign policy, they feel that they feel a fundamental disconnect with the Labour Party as well. Sure. So, on a number of fronts, British Indian Hindus are thinking, well, traditionally we have a connection with the Labour Party, but is it really the Labour Party that I used to vote mm. for? The other thing that's interesting to me is the age breakdown as well, because we've heard many people from the Labour Party, others as well, uh, in the, the, some of the debates last week, trying, sure. to, trying to get the vote dropped down to 16. And while at the same time, nobody's making it official, but a lot of noise is being made about why the hell should older people be able to have an influence on what happens in the future, which for me is not only disingenuous and, and a ghastly thing to say, but also wrong, because it's the age of 60, for example, which is what is being pegged as the age at which you shouldn't be maybe voting on the future. It's embarrassing. Mary, Mary Many more people are living for another 30 years beyond that because now the average uh, age is well into the 80s. You know, people are, I mean, one of the reasons we can't retire at 65 anymore is because people are living longer. Mark, I have to make the point we're talking about a section of the population who have paid into our system for decades, they've contributed to their communities decade after decade. The idea that people are even suggesting to take away their vote mm. is deeply troubling. It's, it is. It's, horribly authoritarian and deeply disrespectful. Mike, I'm of South Asian origin. In our culture, we see, you know, as you become older, you become more you wise. You become wiser. You know, there's a, there's a celebration of wisdom. Anyway. Yeah, in most cases. You know, that celebration of wisdom and also that, that sense of respect and affection for our elders. And I think that one of the biggest problems I have with mainstream British culture is this 
attitude of ageism and this deeply disrespectful attitude towards our elders. Yeah. And that has been exposed since the result of the June 2016 referendum. Mm, absolutely right. Because a lot of rubbish has been talked about how, you know, it's all these old people that have voted for Brexit to, you know, completely ruin everybody's future. When in fact, um, there's no evidence to show that anybody um, older voted more for Brexit than, than they voted to remain. And, they, you know, it's a pretty even split, it seems to me. I mean, I think I'd make the point that is, it, you know, with Brexit, people have tried to you know, generate and disseminate these sweeping generalisations. So, as, as you know, we talked about my recent think tank report which looked at Britain's young Eurosceptics. Yes. There are young people who did actually vote to leave in that referendum. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of young older people. people who actually yeah. voted to remain of as course. well. Well, so, there'll, there'll be plenty of older young, uh, older people who voted to remain because that's all you ever see on the buses that come to London when they have a march, right? And they're all very much over the uh, side of 65. Similarly, in places like the northeast of England, where they had big, uh, big leave votes, there'll be an awful lot of people in their 20s, working class kids, who voted to leave uh, the reality is that this idea that we would take away the vote from older sections of the population which is being suggested by younger people mm. deeply authoritarian it just strikes me as something it, it just shows the moral decay that our society has suffered more generally if i'm being perfectly honest yes i think that's the problem what do you make of the way the campaign's been going so far i mean uh, uh, interesting statistics there from uh, from charlotte our political correspondent saying that actually it looks very much as though um over the course of the last weekend polls are suggesting that the the public trust boris johnson more to run the nhs than they do jeremy corbyn now if that's a result of jeremy corbyn saying that they're going to campaign to save the NHS. That's pretty bad news for Labour, isn't it? It's, it's terrible news yeah. for Labour. The reality is, if there's one issue that Labour had historic ownership over, it was it is healthcare and specifically the National Health Service. But it's interesting that Labour, at their conference, they passed a motion which essentially, it was calling for the removal of all restrictions for migrants to access mm. the healthcare system and more generally the welfare state. Yes. And I've always made the point that you need to have a nationally cohesive society in order to support and sustain these ambitious collectivist projects, which the National Health Service is. Right. So when you're talking about the NHS, it's, it's also those sort of issues also come into it when people say, who do you trust more when it comes to the management of the National Health Service? But I think that's very, that's very encouraging for the Conservative Party, who are already showing signs that they're going to come up with these ambitious uh, infrastructure projects. They're very passionate about, you know, funding uh, public services. So there's the idea, it's, it's almost a mixture of red and blue. They mm. might be socially conservative when it comes to controlling immigration, for example. They might talk more about a more nationally cohesive society. They'll um, be more open about the drawbacks and multiculturalism, but when it comes to economics and public services, Boris might try to attempt to take the Conservative Party in a more social democratic mm. approach. And that could be very appealing in those traditional Labour heartlands who did vote Brexit, and they may be more socially conservative, but they do care deeply about their public services. Right. And they do want the, need, the, the people who need that support from the welfare state to be well protected. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. I hope someday we'll sit down Now, we haven't actually got a countdown clock to the election yet, have we? Uh, I'm getting heads shaking uh, behind me in the glass. So we need a break. We don't need a Brexit countdown clock. We need a uh, an election countdown clock. Can we please get an election countdown clock organised so that I know precisely every day how much closer we're getting to the election? And it will speed up, slow down, you know, as the campaigns go through. We will bring you all of it here, of course, at Talk Radio, because we are your election station. Uh, Mr Chris has tweeted, he says, so good to hear someone of South Asian heritage talking about the various South Asian communities in the UK. So knowledgeable and interesting. Makes a change from being told about them by what white men and women think. I think that's absolutely right. There's no way that you would put all white people in one political group. So why would you put all non-white people in a political group? And that's what we get Dr. Rakib Hassan in here for from the Henry Jackson Society, because that's important. Let's talk now, though, about uh, a lot of things to do with the election. But one particular thing outside of the election, which has caught my interest as a media sort of uh, specialist. And I've got Andre Walker here, columnist and talk radio presenter, of course. Andre, welcome to the Independent Hello. Republic once more. Lovely to see you. Um, it's getting a bit febrile out there, and it could get even more febrile with the news that I read this morning uh, that Steve Bannon, uh, Donald Trump's uh, sort of former chief advisor, is interested in buying the Daily Telegraph. Isn't that marvellous? Well, it could well be. <laughs> it, sent, it sent people absolutely crazy. I bet it has. I worked with Steve Bannon when we set up Breitbart London together right. with a few other people. I don't, mm. want to take, I don't want to take undue credit. Yes. Um, look, he's a phenomenal person. He's a phenomenal media star. And he's somebody who understands working class voters. Not every... You, you know how you were just saying not every white person votes the same way, not yeah. every Asian person. Look, not every working class person mm. likes Steve Bannon's politics. But these are people who've been fundamentally neglected. Yes. And I would argue that the Daily Telegraph has been neglected. You know, it, it is heading, I don't want to be rude, it is heading towards bankruptcy. It'll make 900,000 this year. Right. It was sold for 600 and what, 25 million yeah. uh, 10 years ago. It's now worth 100 million. And they're trying to sell it for 600 million, which they're not going to be able to do, are they? I mean, this is the Bar- it's owned currently by the Barclay yes. brothers, who are two, what can only be described as rather odd and slightly eccentric brothers who live on the <laughs> island of Sark, yes. uh, in the middle of the channel, um, and who have now kind of gifted the running of the operation to their two sons, yes. uh, who, make no mistake, are also quite elderly. They're in their sort of mid to late 60s. So it's a very traditional newspaper, formerly the Tory kind of mantra paper, 
but no longer. But look, I, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm favouring a sister publication to talk radio. But look, but you know, if you look at what the Times has done, the Times is 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 much more pop. Well, it's much. I think it's a much better product. The Times is far the cleverer. It's far cleverer, and it's far more modern. Uh, yes. And it represents far more views, I think, than the Telegraph, doesn't it? I, I, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. And then when you go to the mid-market, you know, you've got the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday, mm. and then you've got the Sun for for kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the white van man type people. Yeah. Um, but And then you think, well, where does the Telegraph fit into all of this? Now, with Breitbart, you know, whatever you think of Breitbart, good, bad or indifferent, when we came to, to London, or when it came to London, I was clearly already here, when it came to London... You know, it really, really developed a huge following absolutely overnight. It was yeah. something like during the Brexit referendum that, that year, it was the seventh most shared UK website on Facebook. Yeah. Now, that is a phenomenal thing mm. for a website that had been simply unheard of a few yeah. years before. Now, in terms of the background at Breitbart, remember, although the deal had been done between Steve Bannon, Robert Mercer and, um, and Andrew Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart really died before... Um, before the deal was properly right. put through and before he made any difference. So it was really Steve Bannon on his own. Right. Uh, who, who and how does Breitbart fare these days? Is it still kind of as popular? I mean, come this election, for example, yeah. how important will it be? I think it's I think it's less popular. I think it's 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 settled down a little bit. Mm. I think you needed the Steve Bannon push in there, but look, they've still got James Dellingpole as yeah. their chief uh, chief columnist in the UK, and that's a pre and that's a pretty big name. Right. In fact, I think I'm right in saying that Dellingpole was the most popular writer they had worldwide mm. because of all of his views on climate change yes. and whatever. So I think it is still big in America. It's not as big, but it's a, you know. The shame for Breitbart, as far as I'm concerned, is I think Bannon really would have pushed it forward. Yeah. But when that book came out, uh, where clearly Bannon had been, um, let's just say, indiscreet yes. about Donald Trump, mm. uh, that's kind of where it ended for him. And then it sort of fell out with Trump, and Trump was then quite disparaging about him, as he is with anyone that he yeah. sort of falls out with, which yeah, is absolutely. basically everyone. Well, he called him <laughs> he called him Sloppy Steve, yeah. which um, which was a reference to Bannon's dress code. But I, I warn you, don't look that up on the internet, because uh, he no. accidentally said something quite rude. Yes, I wouldn't want to do that. What about uh, the likelihood of this happening, though? Because Bannon isn't a wealthy enough man to no. come up with that kind of money. Well, so uh, well, you it's a say, question of what he puts together, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So he declared he declared uh, being worth $48 million when he went into the White House. You know, these, these statutory yeah. declarations. Right. Um, so obviously not rich enough to buy it on his own. Um, presumably, he's not in with Robert Mercer anymore after the falling out. Mm. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not, but um, but Mercer presumably could have bought it and would have done. Yeah. Um, it, beyond that, look, he, he used to work at Goldman Sachs. He used to work at Goldman Sachs in London. Yeah. And he um, reputedly owns a percentage of the TV show. Is it Frasier or Seinfeld? I can't remember. Okay. But it's, it's one of the two. Right, which um, make quite a bit of money on made, reruns. Absolutely. What about his kind of um, his 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 sort of partners in things like um, the Leave campaign, possibly the yeah. Brexit Party, people like Aaron Banks, those kinds of people who are obviously very wealthy. You were Lots of to, wealthy backers of the Brexit you were about Party. To, you were about to use the phrase partner in crime, but clearly you didn't mean that literally. Actually, no, I wasn't. I was going to say something else which would have been worse. So I just stuck to partner. <laughs> But anyway, nevertheless, um, who I mean, who does he know? I suppose is what I'm asking. Who would pass the right and proper test, which is what inevitably um, the, the authorities in the UK well, would would want them think, to do? I think the problem you would have with 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 Steve Bannon. I, I don't know all of the Brexit Party people and all the UKIP people, but I, you know, generally it's said that Aaron Banks is the richest of them. Yeah. And Aaron Banks, I suspect, and Steve Bannon in the same room, whilst they might get together well to start with, I think that would end badly. They're Too both many egos. 
incredibly, incredibly headstrong, incredibly mm. my way or the highway. I don't think it's necessarily e ego. I think when you are that sort of person, you're built up from nothing, mm. you you are quite a robust kind of character. I think we've all been in rooms with these people and not many of them like to be told what to do or no. being given advice, uh, which may or may not be unsolicited. You know, they prefer to go, like, this is what I want to do. How are you going to help me? That's and right. when people go, well, actually, no, this is what you have to do but, and this is what I can do, then they go, eh, I don't know. But I, I think the reason, I think, to answer your question properly, I think the reason that Steve Bannon is talking about it being a global brand is because I think that he would find it easier to find an American mm. hedge fund billionaire, of which he knows lots, yes. than, than find somebody in the UK. And also, interestingly, I was thinking about this when I saw this story, that, you know, he's probably, whoever buys it now will have to be not buying it for the purchase of a printed newspaper. They'll yes. be buying it for the title, uh, right. for the internet site, uh, for what they can do worldwide, I suppose, with video, um, you know, with audio, even maybe with radio, um, on something which is a new kind of right-wing site. Yeah, like. absolutely. And I think what you've got, if you were to be, if you were to consider being a banned investor, you've got a former investment banker who is used to putting together media deals, who you know finance shows in Hollywood, yeah. and also has set up his own media company. Effectively set it up. I, I keep saying this. Andrew Breitbart set up Breitbart, but effectively, uh, Steve mm. Bannon is the person that made it what it was. Um, you know that that sounds to me like a good bet. And does he have credibility? Do you think in the city? from that point of view? Well, the, the big problem, the big risk, I think, would be that there would be a boycott telegraph campaign. Yes. Now, the question is how severe that would be. Mm. And forget forget the readership. It's not about the readers. It's about the advertisers. Yes, right. What they start doing is they go for Heinz Beans and say, you are advertising with this right-wing publication, mm. and, they, and the advertisers yeah. start to bail. Um, look, I, I think... I think I think, firstly, I think he will be looking for sugar daddies. Yeah. That's what he did with Robert Mercer and Breitbart. Um, and I think when you're talking about £100 million pounds or what, $110 million, there are people who spend that per year on political campaigning in America sure. out their own pocket. It doesn't mean very much at all in terms of the money. The human zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Oh. Not sure you want her as the uh, spokeswoman for the Brexit party, but that's another story. I'm not sure which way she's going to vote. Uh, we've got loads of you who want to talk to Alex Phillips, who's here, very kindly hanging around, even longer than we thought she would. Thank you, Alex, for that. Um, I love we've being got here. the phones working. I love being here as well. I love it better when the phones are working as well. Jerry is in Burton on Trent. Hello, Jerry. Hi there, Mike. How are you Alex? doing? Hello. Oh, I'm fine. Just really enjoying the programme. Good. Absolutely superb. Brilliant. Enjoy entering the Republic with full vigour. <laughs> well done. <laughs> superb. The only thing is, I'd just like to get across to Alex. Um, we really do need a clear message to sound against Boris's claim about us coming out. And the problem is, I think from the Brexit side of things, to make it really clear what the distinct difference between both camps are and make sure that message comes out. Because Boris doesn't Boris doesn't make any points that Alex made just earlier about the distinct difference. So is there is there going to be some approach to make making certain that the polarity between both camps is really emphasised through the campaign. I couldn't agree with you more, Jerry. In fact, I, you know, I, I want to smash my head against a wall and say, why are we not owning the airspace and telling everybody why this treaty is so exactly. awful? 
but we've only just begun. We've got six weeks now to really fight them on this. Personally, I wish we had started doing it early. I wish we had had a couple of weeks head start and been able to sort of um, expose this, this treaty for what it is before we get to the point of nominations. And that way we might actually find the Conservatives buckling under pressure. But they are worried. And I'll tell you why I know they're worried. You just have to look at people like Steve Baker, who I admire greatly, the former hard man yeah. of Brexit is what I'm going to call him. So he's become the soft man of the treaty these days. He won't like that. Oh, no, I do like Steve. He's got a good sense of humour. But, um, but you know, we've got people like him turning around. They're all clubbing together going, no, Nigel, this is terrible. If they thought that Nigel had no impact or no relevance and wasn't speaking the truth, they wouldn't be coming out um, knife sharpened to go after him. This is the Conservative Party doing what they do so excellently. And you have to, you, have to, you know, dock your cap to them. They are very bound together, very tribal. They have, usually have very good hierarchy, despite having 11-odd people in the Tories who went a bit rogue and didn't chime the party line over Brexit. Usually the Conservative party will put blue before anything and you I suppose you could admire them for that but I don't think it you know that shouldn't come by compromising your nation's future there's a time when you have to say this is a one-off exceptional circumstance and the stupid thing is actually if the conservatives did do a deal with us they would end up with more seats themselves than they would do running against us but it's this weird sense of pride that they can't do it but as you were saying, Jerry, we need to come out and make it very clear why this treaty is bad. We haven't done enough yet in that direction. We're starting off on the back foot and people are, have bought wholeheartedly the idea that it's a fantastic new deal because that's what Boris has been saying. But, you know, we are only just starting this campaign and the next six weeks are going to be very interesting. Um, my little analogy, which um, my dear friend Nigel has stolen from me and is using it liberally, is um, rather like a piece of cheese kept out of the fridge for too long. After a while, when this thing's given some daylight it's going to start to honk some french cheese honks even when they give it to you at the beginning though so you know maybe <laughs> you just pretend it's french how about this from danny who says mike what a fantastic case alex has put forward i was leaning back towards boris johnson's deal but she's completely changed my mind and now it's back to the brexit party yay so you're obviously working jerry thanks for your call we're gonna run frankie's in Whitechapel. hi frankie hello mike how are you me old mate very right? well sir very well what can you tell us Lovely, great show as usual. Alex, I've got to tell you, love, I've got to take my hat off to you, my little darling. I've got to tell you, it cannot be easy being a woman who's been absolutely proactive in trying to get us the way that we should have done in the first place three and a half years ago to get us out. Oh, I really take my hat off to you because I've got to tell you, <clears throat> Nigel, what he's suffered in the way of even taking his kids out to go and have a meal, a bit of grub on a Sunday in a pub, being spat at. Yeah, I was there that day. Abused, absolutely diabolical. I am disgusted at some of these personalities that call themselves Democrats in our, in our very own country. And a woman like yourself, taking it forward, taking this message forward, it cannot have been easy. Now let me, ask, let me just finish and you can crack on. you got a question got at the end of this, Frank, 600, have you? 600, <laughs> what are they calling them, Mike? 600 colourful candidates. Because it could be destroyed as far as their character personalities are concerned. Have a look at the 600 that are already in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too true. It's not a bad thought, I mean, Frankie. look at how many people in the Labour Party have been chucked into prison or, yeah. you know, been paying for rent boys. Right. <laughs> They've got a leg to well, stand listen, on. Well, listen, I mean, the only reason Keith Vaz is not going to be in the next parliament is because he's been suspended and yeah. he won't be able to stand in this election. Otherwise, he would have been back. Yeah, all that, the woman with the ankle tag in um, oh, yeah, Peterborough. The, the one that and voted then, uh, Brexit down. Yeah, and the, the, the ginger-haired chap, the, That's the red-haired the man. Yeah, yeah you're um, not allowed to say that. Who... Tories have just kicked out the guy from up in north in Scotland who, of course, denies the charge. Oh, Mr Touchy Touchy. 
touchy, touchy yeah. feely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all going on. Yep. So, you know, absolutely. So, Frankie, what's your question, by the way? Well, my question is this. Nigel, he is not that stupid, and there's no way that he ain't got a plan up his sleeve. And I'll tell you something else, mate. I'd rather that man out there down the road campaigning because that man is like a ball with a... It's literally like a ball... It's like a ball in a glass shot because what he will do, he will go around and he will... All he's got to do, really, is, is create every paragraph that's damning towards our policy about this treaty that Bojo's trying to sell to us and publish it on every billboard, every bus stop, and let everybody scrutinise exactly where we've been carved up. That's all he's got to do. Well, he's been beginning to do that, I think, on uh, social media. There is a tweet that's going around that Nigel Farage is kind of, you know, speaking over, isn't he, and uh, highlighting bits of the, of the treaty that, that you don't like, effectively. But as I said, there are others who will say that actually his interpretation of that is not entirely what it should be. And that, in fact, you know, there are several good things about it. And I don't. Th- I think you're wrong to say that loads of people are going around saying it's a great deal. I don't think people are saying it's a great deal. But I don't think what they want is another period of uncertainty and more kind of... Uh, uh, you know, delay and more negotiation with an organisation which has proved itself to be not exactly easy to negotiate with. Well, no, I, I understand that completely. But the thing is, if that if that treaty goes through, that's what we're going to be in anyway right. with the transition period. We're still going to have three years of this and we're going to have three years of that while they impose on us whatever they want, which but is so dangerous. But that's inevitably going to be the case anyway, isn't it? Because that's the other thing. I mean, a lot of those who, up until you came on here and made a very good case for it, uh, that I've been talking to on Twitter have kind of been those who I would say they are much more, shall we say, adversarial towards Europe. They don't like Europe. They don't particularly want to leave with good terms. They don't really want to have anything to do with the European Union. And in the end, that's an unrealistic place to be because, of course, we're going to have to deal with them. We're going to have trade deals with them. There's no reason that we have to snub our noses at them and throw rolls at them or anything like that. I mean, you know, we can deal with people, surely, in a mature way um, and leave in a mature manner, which preferably is with a deal, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, yes, I agree with uh, all of that sentiment. Of course I do. Um, But... Do you know, it it pains me to say it, but I would rather go through the pain and the agony of a couple more years or a couple more months, whatever it takes to do this right, than an eternity as a satellite of the EU. I couldn't forgive myself. I couldn't do it to my nation. I couldn't do it to, um, I was going to say, the point about me being a woman in politics, don't worry, I've made my down payments on spinsterhood. I have two cats, <laughs> one called Mob Careful. and one called Murdoch. Okay. So. <laughs> well, who's looking after the cats while you're on the campaign trail? Oh, I've given, well, Murdoch is now with my uh, mum and dad okay. um, in Gloucester and uh, Mog is in Brussels and I gave her a big load of food. Okay. <laughs> so hopefully she'll survive until tomorrow. Probably so. Now Mark says if the Brexit party will not win a single seat but in the meantime will split the Brexit vote and potentially let Corbyn into number 10. The Brexit party has done a great job so far but will not be forgiven for enabling Corbyn and I think that's the way an awful lot of people feel. We've got time to squeeze in one more call. Andy's in Littlehampton. Hello Andy. Oh hello Mike. Thanks very much for squeezing me in. No talk, no problem. What do you want to say? Well look, to Alex. Um, Alex, I can understand uh, what you're trying to do, but look, listen, don't you think it was naive, uh, political naivety, Nigel coming out in his opening speech with all guns blazing, pushing Boris back into a corner where he could only say no. I mean, surely you understand political optics, but Boris, to have said anything but no, he would have had to have trashed everything he'd done in the last hundred days at the beginning of a general election. It's not going to happen. There was no compromise whatsoever. And lastly, Alex, if I may say, if you'd gone for 30 or 40 MPs, which you probably would have stood a good chance of getting, that could have been a game changer. You could have well been the second or third largest party in Parliament and you could have changed from within. But you've taken uh, almost a pound shop route to to a cheap 
a cheap, nasty route to achieve this. Um, if I could answer you on, on both of those points. First of all, I don't think we did go in all guns blazing because when we first made the offer to the Conservative parties of a non-aggression pact, it was very open-hearted and generous and warm. And let's not forget, there will be conversations that have been had behind the scenes as well on this. The person who I think is actually being politically naive is Boris Johnson because what he's doing with this treaty is trying to get rid of a political problem now and kicking the can down the road. And I think if that treaty is signed and goes through, what you'll find in a year's time is the public will never, ever, ever forgive him for what he has done to this country. Now, in terms of um, the argument about seats, and I've said this already during this programme, in an ideal world, I agree with you. It would be great if we didn't have to field candidates up and down the country and could target 30 or 40 and be very strategic like that. But we can't do that, and I'll explain why. The system is designed so you can't do that, because if that was the case, then any small party that comes out of nothing or independent candidates could demand to be in leaders' debates, they could demand to be on Newsnight and Question Time and the BBC Six O'Clock News. You have to, if you're going to be considered a political party who's taking part in this election and gets any sort of coverage, you have to put forward a full slate. Now, we have said to the Conservative Party for about two months now, we will work with you, we'll do a non-aggression pact. And they're the ones who turned around and said, Nigel Farage is not fit for office. I mean, if anything, I think we've been very humble in this situation. And they've given us very little choice. And the stupid thing is they know that if we had a non-aggression pact with them, it's a surefire way of them getting even more seats. So I don't really understand and their mentality, other than the fact that it's true blue pride, it's we can't be seen to do anything with anybody else because they've got the entitlement of an establishment party. Andy, I've got to let you go. I can't let you answer that because we're out of time, unfortunately. Um, Alex, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks Pleasure. for staying. Uh, I'm so glad the phones worked so you could get a flavour of what the people out there are saying. But you'll find that out over the course of the next five or six weeks anyway, I dare say, uh, out there on the campaign. I will be manfully fighting off man flu today and tomorrow. And I'll be back at 10am uh, after uh, I've recorded a few podcasts and done a few other bits and pieces. Uh, this is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. This is Talk Ready. Remember, it is your election station. Across the UK, online and on D. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.